You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. History, at its best, is nothing more than a collection of great stories. Stories of heroes, stories of villains, struggles for power, and stories of spies. It's that last type of story, the spy story, that we get to talk about today. Joining us now is historian Taylor Stormer, who stopped by to tell us about the grandfather of American spying, Benjamin Talmadge. Taylor, thank you for being here today. No, it's my pleasure, Harmony. Benjamin Talmadge turns out to be sort of the founder of spying in America during the American Revolution. But before we talk about the spy ring, I want to think about who Benjamin Talmadge is, where he's born, what kind of family he grows up in. What do we know about his formative years? Well, we know a lot about it because he wrote a, wrote a rather nice autobiography, which is always helpful when you're talking about these kind of figures. But Benjamin Talmadge was born in 1754 on Long Island to a rather large family. His father was a pastor. Um, when he was 15, he went to Yale in Connecticut, where he became friends with Nathan Hale, was a fellow student of his at, uh, at Yale, and they became very good friends. In 1773, both he and Hale graduated from Yale, and they be both became schoolmasters in Connecticut. And then when the Revolutionary War broke out in 1775, they did what everybody else did. They joined up. So they're in their early 20s in 1775. They join Connecticut uh, regiments, and then they end up as officers in George Washington's army. Talmadge starts out with a, a brilliant educational career. I did the math. He's 19 when he becomes a schoolmaster? He's 19 when he becomes a schoolmaster, is yes. that is he like a child prodigy, or is that a common It's pretty age? common. It's pretty common. So he's not exactly a, a child genius, but he is very distinguished in studies. I wonder if some of this early distinction academically helps inform what he's able to do in his career. I think absolutely. That one of the things that's very interesting about Talmadge is that in his background, his academic, his academic pursuits and his academic qualifications, is that from a very early age, he's very good at languages. He's very good at Latin and Greek. And when you're talking about Latin and Greek, it's not just about, it's not learning, uh, it's not learning a, a language that is based upon a familiar set of grammar rules or even on the same alphabet when you're talking about, about Greek. You're talking about um, interpreting symbols and transforming those symbols into a language. And I think it's that kind of thing, that his capacity for language, his capacity for under, to understanding these ancient languages that are so different in structure from anything that he's familiar with, and his ability to really grasp symbols and meaning and being able to turn those into an effective form of communication, I think that that speaks volumes for the kind of student he was, the kind of mind that he has, and the kind of things that he's able to achieve when he becomes in charge of uh, George Washington's intelligence. How does he climb up through the ranks in his early assignments? Well, when he first starts the, the, the war, he is in a Connecticut militia unit. But then he ends up, the, the, I think the, the turning point is that when he ends up as being, uh, being transferring to a regiment of, of, of basically cavalry, it's, but it's called, the unit is called the Second Continental Light Dragoons, but it's basically a cavalry regiment. And at the time, and we're talking 17th and 18th century in warfare, that the units that are charged with gathering intelligence, however crudely they do it, but the units that are in charge with doing that are the cavalry units. So they're the ones that are supposed to be going out and engaging in reconnaissance, finding out where the enemy is, reporting on their numbers, reporting back. And um, he's able to go, as a part of that cavalry unit, he's able to go out on missions, on individual missions, on, on larger missions, to go out and find out what the enemy is doing. And I think it is that experience that, that makes him recognize what 
not only what a challenge that is and how important it is to know that, but also how it can be done better. That having a bunch of soldiers on horses go out looking for the enemy um, might not be the most effective way to also keep, also keep the enemy from knowing where you are. That there's got to be a better way to do this. And so I think that that is, that's the big, that's the big watershed in his career in, in intelligence gathering. Because I think he starts thinking about it at that point. What is Talmadge's better way? How does he improve traditional recon? Well, the first thing that he actually does, and he does this still while he's part of the part of the Continental Dragoons, is that he develops a network among his friends. Now, at the time, most of the fighting is going on around New York. It's shifted from Boston down to the New York area. The 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 British Army is in control of New York, um, but remember, Benjamin Talmadge is from Long Island, and so he has all of these co connections around New York and down Long Island where the British are. And so he thinks that the best way to be able to communicate, to find out what the enemy is doing, and to communicate that information accurately and quickly, is to put together a network of those people. But these are, this is a civilian network. It's a civilian network. That These are people who are not part of the military and, for the most part, are not known to each other. I mean, he starts off with them being his friends, but then then builds on that as he expands it even further and he develops his own ideas about how to go about doing it. Now, he wasn't the, the first person who was in charge of, of intelligence gathering for George Washington. That was a guy named Charles Scott. But Charles Scott wasn't doing a terribly good job. Um, uh, so Washington did things like would go out and ask for volunteers from the, from the Continental ranks, particularly from the cavalry units, who would be interested in going on spying missions. And that's how Talmadge's friend Nathan Hale gets involved. That in late 1776, Washington does this, goes out and asks for volunteers, for people who are willing to go on spying missions behind British lines in New York, to find out what the enemy strength numbers are, what their locations are. And Nathan Hale steps up. Nathan Hale has no training as a spy, obviously. I mean, he's the same, he's, a, he's almost exactly the same age as Benjamin Talmadge. I mean, they're, they're, they're both 22 at the time. And, uh, but his enthusiasm is such that he's not going to let this opportunity to go by to distinguish himself with the commander-in-chief. And, uh, and so, in a very, I think what we might call a, uh, a, an amateurish way, um, if that's not putting it too strongly, um, he goes behind enemy lines. Um, he has the he has the, he has a heart of an ox in doing this, and nothing, nothing scares this guy. But he is quickly identified when he gets behind those lines in Long Long Island, and he is openly in a notebook writing down enemy strengths, enemy positions. People peg him very quickly, and then in a tavern one night, a uh, a British officer basically gets him to confess. Um, that he gets him to admit that he's yeah that he's actually behind the lines spying on um, spying on on the British for the Americans, uh, and that's on September 21st, 1776. And uh, and poor Nathan Hale, uh, um, for all of his spirit, got himself into trouble very very quickly. And on September 22nd, he was hanged. This must have really been a searing shock to Talmadge to see his childhood friend, his college friend caught spying this way and, and meeting this end. Do you think that that's one of the influences that makes Talmadge think, how can we do this better? To me, one of the most interesting things about the American Revolution is how personal it is for so many of its participants. That how the, the, the things that influence the, the, 
the course of their careers, the choices that they're making, are also individual. Uh, they're based upon personal relationships. And I think that what happens with Nathan Hale um, and also with his brother William um, are, are things that influence him uh, enormously. That here is one of his best friends, somebody he went through his formative years with uh, when they're at college. They, they both follow the same pattern in their, in their careers in, as school teachers and then in their careers in the Army. And what happens is that you have somebody who is inexperienced, you're sending them behind the lines to do something dangerous that trained, experienced people should be doing. Um, and you're just putting both them and your, uh, and, your own, and your own cause at risk. So what you need to do, and I think this is how it really impacts Benjamin Talmadge, is that when, is that when the British not only find him so easily um, that, um, and they react so quickly and execute him right away, that um, that makes Talmadge think that um, what we need to do is have trained people do this. Uh, we need to have come up with a clear system for gathering this information. Um, and we need to make sure that we are dealing with people in, uh, in, a, in a fair way when it comes to this. So asking for volunteers isn't going to do it. If we want to really win this, then we need to be professional about how we're gathering our intelligence. And in the back of his mind, I think he always has the example of Nathan Hale as to why it's so important to develop a professional intelligence gathering network that's geared entirely to do that and not asking people to do things that they're not trained to do, because that's, un that's just blatantly unfair to them. And it's detrimental to the cause. And thus begins the Culper spy ring. Talmadge <laughs> creates his spy ring, and they initiate a lot of practices that are new to the American Revolution, maybe not new to the world. What are some of the techniques that Talmadge uh, institutes in his own spy ring? Well, a couple of things that are, that are really interesting, because he's very creative, as we talked about before, in terms of his use of languages. Um, I mean, their use of codes, but also in terms of their, in terms of their practices. Everybody has um, a code name, so mainly so that nobody knows actually who any other members of the spy ring are. So that the spy ring had dozens of people in it, but he thought that the best way to protect them and to protect to protect the network that he built was to make sure that nobody knew who anybody else was, including George Washington. George Washington had no idea of the identity of the people who were in this spy ring. Only Benjamin Talmadge and, uh, and, and one, of the, one of the other major figures in it knew who anybody else was. And so that's the first thing, is keeping your identity secret. And how did they do that? They gave individuals numbers. Um, well, they gave some individuals numbers. So you would be, um, you would be 121, you would be 242. One of the things that Talmadge did was he came up with um, his own cipher book that was uh, basically a dictionary of numbers that were assigned to particular words and particular identities and particular places. So these people would not only have their own, their own code names in this book, so say John Culper. Um, who isn't a real person, um, but he would then have a number. And so when they were communicating back and forth to each other, or even communicating between Talmadge and Washington, he would refer to them by number. So that even if you had the cipher, you would, you would then just have this person's, this person's code name, and uh, you still wouldn't know who they were. Um, some of the other things that they did in terms of practices, they would use dead drops, 
in order to exchange information about, uh, information about troop, troop movements. And so what this network would do is that it really was connecting dots, that one person would find out the information and then they would take it to a dead drop, for example. So that would be, um, in the case of the Culper spy ring, the middle of a field on the northern end of, uh, on the northern shore of Long Island uh, that had a large rock in it. But under the rock, the, the, the ground was dug out. And so they would put the message uh, into the hole, put the rock back over it, and then um, a woman right next door would put up on her on her wash line um, a white sheet. But one sheet um, or two sheets or three sheets will mean different things to somebody who's watching from the other side of the Long Island Sound. And so, and but these people wouldn't know each other. And so things like things like dead drops, things like code names, and things like ciphers. Are, were hallmarks of the Culper spy ring. And one of the things that made them so effective in giving George Washington the information he needed to, to keep the British Army bottled up in New York for as long as he could. And of course, like all good spies, they used a great quantity of invisible ink. <laughs> they, they, they did. They had all, all a bunch of different ways of doing it. Talmadge was particularly, it was, and again, this is another example of how Tom, Talmadge's mind worked. Uh, Talmadge came up with a very complicated invisible ink. Some invisible inks are very easy. Lemon juice works. Milk works. Um, and all you have to do is write it in, uh, in lemon juice for invisible ink. You expose it to a little bit of heat, and then the message shows up on a piece of paper. It's very easy. Well, what Talmadge came up with was one that was based upon a compound of chemicals. One, you would write it in one form of chemical, and then in order to recognize, in order to, for, for it to appear, you'd have to apply another chemical um, to do it. So it wasn't quite so easy as all you're doing is you're applying, you're using lemon juice and you just hold it up to a candle. No, you need both chemicals. Um, but, but, they used, but Talmadge used that a lot between, with him and Washington. And so there are lots of examples of letters between him and Washington that are using this invisible ink compound. Now, other people would write using different, you know, different kinds of codes, um, so they wouldn't have to worry about things like invisible ink. Uh, that they would ha they would use things like um, what's called a book code, um, and that's what uh, something that John Andre and Benedict Arnold used to communicate. And something that is uh, that's uh, that's still used today, but that just depends upon two people having the exact same edition of 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 a particular book, and that's just a set of numbers that'll guide you to a page, a line, and the word in that line. Um, another way um, that was also a favorite of the British, the Americans didn't use this one very often, was to use what's called a a card and grill um, or a mask, and that is basically you. You write in a letter a, um, your message in a particular form. Uh, uh, Henry Clinton, who was the commander-in-chief of the British Army, um, used an hourglass. And so basically you write your message in, in this using the shape of an hourglass. So you write your message in the hourglass, and then you take off the grill, and then you actually write a different letter, and then you write a letter around those words, incorporating them. So when you read it, it just, on the face of it, it's just a, an innocuous letter about supplies or something like that. But then when you put the, the grill over it... Like a stencil. Like a, exactly like a stencil. Um, the real message will show up. And the British loved that one, uh, and actually got him into trouble because Clinton, Clinton ref almost ref refused to use pretty much anything else. And so during the during the Battle of Yorktown, a number of uh, a number of dispatches from uh, Charles Cornwallis to Clinton are are intercepted, 
and the codes in them are easily broken um, by the Americans. So they know exactly what Cornwallis' situation is. Um, there's, uh, there's one case um, that I think is uh, it's very interesting to talk about when you're talking about spying in the American Revolution. And that is anybody could do it. Um, this wasn't, and I think this is something that was particularly important to Talmadge too, about uh, let's not use the likeliest candidates for this. Um, if really anybody uh, needs to be doing it, young, old, male, female, free, enslaved. You said that anybody can be a spy, and at Colonial Williamsburg, we really mean that. We've got a program called RevQuest that allows guests, uh, parents, children, families, adults, everybody, to come and be a spy. Tell us about that program and how it works and how it will draw you into the world of revolutionary spies. Well, RevQuest, the line in the unicorn, um, is really about making sure that, that those who play the game understand that to protect your republic, to protect your country, it requires the personal responsibility of every citizen. Everybody has this kind of responsibility and can play a role. And so what we've done with the line in the unicorn is that we have taken a, a very real historical figure, a historical, a, a double agent, um, and following his experience, um, people who play the game have to find out who he is and also defend him from being identified by the British. And to do that, they had to actually use um, 18th century documents, but also a number of these spying techniques that we've just been talking about. They have to decode a number of, of letters. They have to use things like the book code. They have to use things like the card and grill. And, and in doing so, they're able to learn about the French alliance with America. They're able to learn about British offers of freedom to slaves. Um, they, have, they have to learn about um, uh, what it means to be a double agent and how, the, how spying in the American Revolution, because this is essentially a civil war, is particularly fraught. Because you don't know who your enemy or your friend is. You have to be very careful about these things because it could be very easy for you to admit, take a misstep and then um, you end up not only endangering your cause, but you end up endangering yourself. Now, of course, nobody's going to be endangered playing RevQuest, Lion of the Unicorn, um, at Colonial Williamsburg, but you can learn a whole lot about what it meant to be a spy during the American Revolution, and you can also have a whole lot of fun doing it. And listeners can start now. They can get their spy name, for starters, uh, on your website. Taylor, where can people go to start learning about this game? Uh, they can go to www.colonialwingsburg.com backslash RevQuest. And there they can, get their, they can get their spy name, as they said. And they can also begin to play the game by learning a whole lot about the kind of things that we've been talking about, what it means to be a spy. They can get messages from Benjamin Talmadge. They can find out a lot more about him. They can find out a lot more about the techniques that they need to know in order to be a spy before they ever arrive here in, uh, in Williamsburg so they're ready to hit the ground running. Well, Taylor, if that's your real name, thank you so much <laughs> for being our guest today. Thank you very much, Armin. Do you have a question or suggestion for the show? Leave a comment at podcast.history.org.